Hello everybody, my name is Marianne Salem, aka Mary. I'm here with my co-host, Drury Adenhawk, aka Dale, and we are two writers who love movies, TV and books, especially when they're gay, and you know, welcome to Gay V Club, where we look at LGBT media that we like, that we don't like, and how we relate to them as gay people of colour. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for tuning in and for being patient, as always. Remember... If you like Gay V Club, please recommend us to your friends, your family, your crush, your friend of a friend, your Tumblr mutuals, etc. Leave a nice review where you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can keep up to date with us on our personal socials, but also on Twitter and Instagram at gayv underscore club. And yeah, sorry that it's been so long. We did not intend this. I know we've been hyping up our our Flag Means Death episode over the last couple months, but we've just had so much bad luck with multiple recordings and sound editing issues, and it's kind of cursed for us, honestly. I didn't want to say that it's cursed, but it is cursed. It is cursed. Maybe the podcast, like, you know, lords or whatever, were trying to save us. The podcast from the- gods were like, yeah, but that's okay. Um, we've just We've just decided to table it for now, and we'll do something fresh whenever the second season comes out. If you are interested in what we do have to say, that we have got a finished episode on Our Flag Means Death up on Patreon. Um, it does have some audio issues, but if you don't mind that, then consider going to support us. Um, really smooth transition. Yeah. Really smooth transition plug. Um, yeah, patreon.com slash gayvclub. Even though we haven't like published any episodes publicly, like we've been doing lots of bonus episodes this year. Um, so you can go listen to those as well. In other news, Mary has been published in two anthologies this year. Two, baby! They are called This All Come Back Now and Unlimited Futures. They are both anthologies for First Nations and Black authors in Australia writing sci-fi and speculative fiction. And I would like to point out as well that both the editors of both those anthologies are very gay. And their stories are also in there. So if you want to support not only First Nations and black writers in Australia writing sci-fi, but you also want to support a whole bunch of amazing queer writers as well, go and order those anthologies and enjoy them. Yeah. You will not just get to read my story, but a whole bunch of other really awesome stories. Congratulations, mate. Thank you. And also in other news, we've got like new logos. Thanks to (gasps) our bestie, Xavier Emerson. And they're so cool. Yeah. Let us know what you think of them. Um, Because I I really love it. I really love the Vaporwave. I think that fits with us and our vibe. Yeah. So what are we talking about today? Well, today we are going to be attempting to answer the age-old question, a question that has been discussed quite a lot in pop culture over the last several years and decades, which is, you know, should sex scenes be allowed? Some people say they should, some people say they shouldn't, and some people question their very necessity in storytelling. So we wanted to discuss that today, specifically in relation to gay sex scenes. Yeah. Also, you know, we, we're going to be talking about sex today, so um, any young'uns, um, please press stop on this and listen to something else yes also you know if us discussing sex just generally like specifically sex scenes in in media just isn't your cup of tea yeah you know you're welcome to not listen to this one this fine it's cool it's cool but yeah to start off 
what were the first gay sex scenes that we ever saw and do you think they were good? <laughs> yes, okay, so the first... So obviously I'm going to split this into two categories, which is the first gay sex scene between men I saw and the first gay sex scene between women I saw. The first one I ever saw between two men was in Torchwood. And I specifically remember this because I remember I was at my friend's house and I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, this is what men do, like, when they have sex, you know? Like, this is brand new information. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, so, you know, I found it... I don't know whether it was good or not, because the episode in which you see the the gay sex occur, uh, the, the premise of that episode is that there is a deeply horny alien that's possessing everybody and making them have sex, and then they blow up and die after they have sex. So, um... Which is a plot line that Chris Chibnall directly ripped off the 1982 film Liquid Sky just mm -hmm. saying but uh you know Chris Chibnall has never written anything original in his life so that's not surprising so I can't honestly say to you not being a gay man and also um you know I think I was maybe 17 or 18 at the time uh I really cannot tell you whether I thought it was good or not. Like, even now, looking back on it, I really can't tell you because I was more concerned, you know, with the aforementioned alien because they, you know, they had to really get to this alien before it could blow up people for having sex. <laughs> that was more my concern. I was like, oh my God, are the Torchwood team going? <laughs> are they going to be okay? Are they going to be okay? Are they going to do this? Will horniness be their downfall? That is Torchwood in a nutshell. Yeah. Like, will will horniness <laughs> be their downfall? <laughs> because we know that, like, empathy and compassion for children is never their downfall, so it's literally just horniness. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry, for all you Torchwood heads out there, you'll understand why that's funny, um, but, like, if you haven't seen Torchwood, you just won't. Um <laughs> Moving on, the first sex scene I ever uh, saw between women. I am not 100% confident on this, but the first one I can really remember like taking note of was uh, in Orange is the New Black. And I just remember like sort of being weirdly excited because I didn't, I was kind of too young when shows like The L Word came out, so I hadn't really seen and i also never watched glee or anything so i, I didn't i hadn't really there seen. weren't sex scenes in glee not really oh there weren't i thought there were for some reason well either way i i did not engage with the sort of gay shows in the 2000s i was sort of like a little bit young um but so orange is the new black was really the first one i ever saw and um i just remember really enjoying them not only because it was a novelty for me personally but like i also like how the sex scenes in Orange is the New Black like tend to be quite comedic um, mm. because, you know, the first season of the show in particular is is much more of like a comedy, like it's more on the comedy side of dramedy. Um, and so the sex scenes like tend to be quite funny, um, particularly any of the ones involving Natasha Leon's character. But mm. but yeah, I just remember thinking that I liked how funny they were and I liked that, you know, people talked and said weird things during them. Mm. And, you know, there was it just was so real. It was so real. And to this day, you know, I do actually appreciate Orange is the New Black for how, like, you know, it did feature, like, lots of different looking women and... Yeah, body types and... Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah and I do appreciate that about it. Like, for all its problems, like, that was something that was really meant a lot to me, like, watching Orange is the New Black, just seeing all these different women and different women with different opinions and outlooks on life. And, yeah, I just loved that, so... 
was it good? Um, I think it was. So, yeah. So that's me. What about you? The first one I would have seen would have been when I was 15, watching Heartbeats by Xavier Dolan. Yeah, I'd say they were good. They were more just really artsy. So this was like at a period of time where like, oh yeah, I'm getting into cinema. I'm going to watch like foreign <laughs> films. Um, I'm going to, you know, like I'm going to watch Art House. And um, yeah, those scenes, you know, they've got like colored filters all over them. They're in slow motion. They're quite intimate. They've got Bach's um, cello suite number one playing over them um so yeah yeah those were the first ones that I saw um I thought they were quite nice like in hindsight I think they were quite nice I think like when I was 15 it was just like a novelty to me um but I do Mm. think they're quite nice they're not very explicit but I think that also like because there are heterosexual sex scenes in that movie as well and I think because the heterosexual sex scenes like involved titty um female titty female presenting (gasps) nipples um (laughs) that that's what made them feel more explicit um because yeah men's nips just aren't as aren't as as sexualized i guess usually i'm less um scandalized um whenever i see a gay sex scene i don't know like i mean when i watch them as well like i'm kind of like this is none of my business um but it's (laughs) (laughs) but you know it looks like they're having fun that's really nice (laughs) Actually, I feel that about all sex scenes for the most part. I'm just like, yeah, this is none of my business. I'm going to look at my phone. See, for, for me, I'm very much a person where I'm like, ah, well, I'm watching a film and this is just sort of part of the scenery of the movie. Like if I'm watching a movie that happens to have a sex scene in it and let's say I'm watching with my parents or whoever, like I don't necessarily get embarrassed because I'm like, well, it's just in the movie and it's just part of the movie. Yeah. Um, And just to give people an idea of just how much I think this way, I I saw Wolf of Wall Street with my dad, like, and that movie is soft porn essentially. Um, And we both hated it, but not for the reason that there was lots of sex in it, just because we both hated the movie itself. Mm. But yeah, so that's how I think of sex scenes. And I genuinely don't think about them that deeply any more than other, like another aspect of uh, any other aspect of a film, like Mm. unless they're like particularly egregious or particularly good or, you know, funny or, you know, unless they stand out in a way, uh, really. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. that's just how I view them personally. And then uh, the first time I saw lesbian sex in a movie, that would have been mm. Blue is the Warmest Color, um, which, you know, did, had no, like I was 17 years old. I had, That had like no, absolutely no, yeah, had you absolutely were fine. no effect on like my coming out story. Mm. And yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to you and any other gay person. I'm sorry to Leia Sado and Adele Xarkopoulos, like, Mm. yeah what happened to them was awful uh, yeah, yeah no, it's just it was... it's just real real sad um when you think about it on so many levels like on that, so many that, levels that movie and whoa, 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 wait wait mm. wait oh wait okay black swan oh was black swan 2010 no yeah it would have been black swan sorry oh okay um, i was quite young like 14 years old and had no inkling i was gay so i think i was just embarrassed to watch it yeah um, but also that scene in the movie is actually just really scary when it happens as well. <laughs> um, so you I will, was looking you... away. So yeah, it would have been Black Swan, but um, Blue is the Warmest Color is the one that sticks out for me probably because it was so high impact. I think that really summarizes our attitudes towards these things, which I think is good. Like, 
for yeah, the context I think it's of important. the rest of the episode of mm. this. We love, you know, personal context yeah, here yeah. at Gay V Club. The reason that this is such a big topic of debate is because like there are many people with just you know lots of people with different opinions about these things and different comfort levels and people view sex as a very personal thing because it is that's i think part of the reason why sex in film is like very much a polarizing topic Mm -hmm. for many people yeah because you know but yeah that's where we're coming from Part one, a brief but not comprehensive history of gay sex in cinema. Um, we're not including pornography with this because that's a whole other that's a whole other thing. That is mm. that is not that we're not covering that within the scope of our study. No. <laughs> and also, you know, the pornography obviously is part of the film industry in many ways and has affected the film industry, but it is really yeah. a, We're gonna talk own, about that a little bit. It's yeah. it's it's its own like kettle of fish and we mm-hmm. are not frying that fish today. Kettle of fish? Yeah. Haven't you is heard that? Is that a saying? No. Yeah that's a saying. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Dare and I wrote some notes on like a brief but not comprehensive history of gay sex in cinema. Again, cannot emphasize this enough. This is not comprehensive. So, you know, if you know something yeah. uh, that we've missed, just tell us about it because we'd be interested yeah. to know. Um, this is just a timeline for context. Yeah. So obviously LGBT people have been on screen since the beginning of cinema, but not doing anything more physical past kissing usually. We were then entirely erased from Hollywood in the 1930s by our worsty perennial villain of the podcast uh the Hayes code uh which prohibited portrayals of quote unquote deviants from the from the screen which included homosexuality and uh gender nonconformity and also just i think it's important to note that like it also just prohibited sex in general yeah just uh, sex in general sex and sexuality in general and even things like you know people going to the toilet and things yeah. like that. So, yeah, you know, it was pretty like strict. It was a pretty strict code. Just something to note about a lot of recent discourse regarding, um, you know, whether should sex scenes be allowed? A lot of the people against it are accidentally, like, when while proposing alternatives to the story, are actually recreating the Hayes Code. <laughs> mm. Which is so funny. It is. But yeah, obviously the Hayes Code was just Hollywood, though. But generally, all the homophobic, transphobic, misogynist, puritanical principles of the Hayes Code existed in all early film industries and have evolved and persisted to this day. Because, you know, if you want to market your film in as many markets as possible, you have to be aware of regulations in other countries and and things like that. Yeah. So while the code was followed, obviously it didn't just censor um, depictions of physical acts and nudity, but also just any discussions or implications of sexuality. Queer people existed in subtext, but were still very much demonised. An interesting example of this is the Children's Hour, uh, which we know as a lesbian tragedy with Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine, but... William Wyler actually made an adaptation from the play in the 30s, but because of the code, they changed the plot. So instead of one of them being a lesbian, she was instead having an affair with just some guy. Some guy. <laughs> then in 1961, when the code was relaxed while I made the film again, this time with a more true adaptation uh, with Hepburn and McLean as the leads. Yeah. In 1968, The Killing of Sister George featured the earliest post-Hayes lesbian sex scene, which 
I am. I was like very surprised. Uh, I know you, Daya recently. I watched, watched this recently, and I was just surprised that it was that early. You know, yeah, hit the ground running. I assumed that it would be quite tame and only because um, Sister Georgia came out um, around the time that the MPAA rating system mm-hmm. was being introduced, and so like it was given an X rating, which uh, ended up tanking the film. And like actually, like the direct tried to counter sue um, so that he could get the rating. Um, changed but then yeah he lost that so he lost like Mm. 75k sad question Um, mark i don't know question mark but yeah the film itself it actually reminded me so much of kate blanchett's new movie tar it kind of follows the same sort of plot beats you know i would say like maybe it's like one of the original like cancel culture stories quite possibly maybe i don't know it's interesting like when i think about it in relation to tar the way that these things have been desensitized over time Mm. not necessarily in a bad way but yeah the sex scene in killing of sister george was actually like quite explicit um in a way that i wasn't expecting um not even just for the time but just in general when daya was telling me the plot of this film and also describing the sex scene if they hadn't told me or if i didn't know that this film was made in 1968 i wouldn't have assumed it was that old it's a it's a very modern story um Mm. If this movie was made today, like, it wouldn't fly. But I, I just love it, like, for what it is um, yeah, at its time, actually. Yeah, what it was at its time. Um, that's why I also think Tar is kind of like a modern equivalent of it, because that's like a version of Killing of Sister George that does fly. Um, it's also kind people. of interesting that, like, you know, sometimes I think we like to think that films are, like, exploring these, like, really new topics, and it's kind of like, I don't know, I feel kind of melancholic shall we say that like these issues are actually like they've been around for a very long time yeah um and we're still trying to figure out like what to do with them Mm -hmm. um which is very interesting to say the least so yeah in the 1960s as well you had the queer vampire temptress boom that spilled over into the 70s uh which was mostly in exploitative french and italian cinema uh, these were technically porn films, but notably quite a few of them had rather elaborate plots. Um, yeah, there are some of them which I know the people, the guys that made it are gross. And like when you're watching it, you can tell the guys that made it are gross. But also like some of them are just really interesting. I really love um, Fascination by Jean Rollins and Black Cobra Woman by Joe D'Amato. If men didn't exist, like if women made them, they would be the greatest films ever, um, (laughs) in my opinion. So in the 1970s then, which was widely uh, considered the golden age of porn in relation to American context, uh, gay sex made it back to the big screen. But yeah, within the mainstream, it was not for the community. Um, Mm -hmm. It was just sort of for everyone to be very titillated and aroused and woo And um, there were directors like Fassbinder who were making explicit gay films, um, such as Kirel at that time. So that's an interesting thing that was happening in another place. And then um, in the 1970s, like outside of the mainstream, like underground, underground, uh, Chantal Ackerman was making lesbian films in France, um, most notably Je Tu Il Elle, Me, You, Him, Her, which has actually like a very long sex scene in it that's just like one take. It's just very contemplative when you think about it. And also Barbara Hammer, who's considered one of the pioneers of lesbian cinema within America. That's when she began to make films. And I'll talk a bit more about her later. Nice. So in the 1980s, 
queer culture was very much thrown into the eyes of the mainstream due to the AIDS crisis. During this decade, there were many quote-unquote firsts for queer cinema in Hollywood, and we mean sort of actual firsts, not like Disney firsts, like (laughs) actual firsts. Um, So you had films like The Hunger in 1983, which was one of the first films to feature like big stars in a lesbian sex scene. You had Desert Hearts in 1985, which featured the first lesbian sex scene that was directed by a lesbian. In Hollywood, at least, there was not a great deal of mainstream portrayals of gay men. Cruising. Oh, sorry, cruising. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, cruising. Yeah, something... Something important to note when we talk about this period of time is that gay men were more specifically criminalised. So, like, uh, in Australia, gay men who were caught together would be tried for what they called consensual assault. So, like, violence was something that the public, like, heavily associated with gay sex between men, which is why films like Cruising uh, with Al Pacino were made. And, like, at the time of Cruising's release in the 80s, like, there were actual protests by the gay community against the film because it was it was so harmful it like these films were just like so traumatic and probably very villainized by the sound of it yeah it was villainizing um and then later with the aids crisis following and the way that that's how the public became more aware of the queer community and there followed like more narratives that further demonized gay people and gay sex and it was it was just really awful Obviously, like, even though the LGBT community was more visible because it was thrown into the mainstream, that wasn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily done in good faith. It was more often done in extremely bad faith with the intention of... Yeah, with intimacy being demonized. Then, moving on from the 80s, in the 1990s, then, we had the New Queer Cinema Movement, which was a term coined by B. Ruby Rich. Um, and during this time, you have filmmakers like Cheryl Dunier, Greg Araki, Rose Troche, Todd Haynes, Gus Van Sant, many of the pioneers of that movement uh, mm-hmm. start making films during this time. And it's worth noting that these films weren't necessarily like mainstream films. More like successful in the festival circuit? Yeah, lots of critical acclaim like on the festival scene and the independent side of things, but still not a great deal of traction um, in the, you know, the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And this sort of continued into the noughties where we had Ang Lee, um, films like Brokeback Mountain, uh, Celine Sciamma, Xavier Dolan. During this decade, you also had like a bit of a, like you had the queer TV boom, like in sort of full swing. Um, even though that did sort of start at the end of the nineties, it's very mm-hmm. much like gained its biggest amount of traction in the noughties. And you had shows like Queer as Folk, The L Word, Tales of the City. True Blood, Torchwood, and then moving into the 2010s, we have like sort of higher visibility, and you have films both sort of sort of they're really I feel like in the 2010s we've got a real mixed much bag. As, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but you do have I think in the 2010s you do have like queer films sort of entering, starting to like creep into the mainstream a little bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. not a great deal, but so you have films like Blue is the Warmest Color, Disobedience, Duck Butter, Tangerine, Booksmart, Moonlight, um, (laughs) 
I have Christopher and His Kind here, which is not a particularly good movie in the sense that it's not a very accurate biopic about Christopher Isherwood, but I did find a few articles that pointed out that it was like the first time the BBC aired a gay sex scene between two men. And, you know, that's starring Matt Smith as Christopher Isherwood, so there you go. Uh, mm-hmm. Go, Maddie, go, as I like to say. And you also had even more queer TV happening in the 2010s. You had shows, oh, Sense8, mm-hmm. uh, Had a Good Away with Murder, Orange is the New Black, Pose, Gentleman Jack, a very English scandal. Um, I do think this very much coincides, though, with the general, like, golden age of television boom as well. Like, television was seen as much more of, like, a prestige. Like, it's starting to be seen as much more of a prestige format during this time. And that's very much thanks to a lot of factors. But, you know, because of that, because people were throwing money into, like, long-form stories more, you did have more... Typically, people you would have seen making films like move into television, uh, mm-hmm. like the Wachowskis and many others. So that is the 2010s. And then, well, we're currently in the 20s, and I don't really think we can say anything concrete about the 20s as of yet, because it's still very early days. That's to date a very brief, non-comprehensive history of gay sex and sexuality in, in cinema. Yeah. Um, so part two, why does so much gay sex often have explicit, uh, sorry, why does so much gay sex often, <laughs> why, why part does so two, much gay sex? Yeah. why does so much gay sex have so much gay sex? Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so weird, part man. two, yeah, part two, why does so much gay cinema often have explicit sex scenes? Um, so it's kind of widely regarded that the gayest thing one can possibly do is have gay sex. Like, this idea that, like, acting on the impulse to do, like, what is considered the thing that people find so unnatural about us. Like, that's kind of considered the massive leap. Like, oh, you know, you've never acted on it. But, like, once you act on it, it's, it's you know, all hell breaks loose in um, straight you're people's not, minds. You're not actually um, gay until you do the gay, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, which, you know, I don't necessarily agree with this principle in real life as it erases varied relationships that queer people have towards sex and sexuality, mm. you know, like there are asexuals. And also like just in general, like being gay, like shapes your relationships with people. Yeah. It, it shapes your perception of self. I mean, particularly when you're young, like that's not necessarily something you're going to be doing, but you're still, you're still gay. Feels like treating it like very much like a clock on clock. It's like, yeah. oh, I'm only gay when I'm having sex. And the rest of the time, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like very much not gay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was thinking about this, like how to, how to close this gag. Um, I think actually the gayest thing that you could do is um, propose to your partner um, in the mosh pit of a Mika concert. Yeah, I'd agree. That's, that's the gayest thing we've ever seen happen. Like I think about those guys quite often i hope they're okay hope they're happy <laughs> hope they had a hope wedding happy. you know that, you know, that was they, at the big like that, that was, was at like the beginning just of before COVID. covid hit me mm. me and mary went to see mika on march 28th in 2020 yes yeah that was and so i, I hope they finally had <laughs> I, I hope those two those two people they finally had their gay wedding i hope that yeah I hope they stay together. I hope I, you know, I if if they listen to this podcast, you know, if you were at the Micah concert and you proposed to your partner, or, or you were the partner that got proposed to, like, please let us know how you're doing. Yeah, would love mm. to know. But yeah, I, in movies, in movies, in movies, you know, because you know, actors, you know, they they're meant to like movies are meant to have actors, you know, act out actions, um, so that you see them doing what? things. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's probably like considered that the gayest thing you can see an actor act out in the gayest action that you can see an actor act out in a movie um, is having gay sex, which is why it's there. And yeah, so like uh, one of the biggest arguments is that sex scenes are unnecessary and gratuitous and can never like possibly contribute anything to a story's plot or just like offering like any information about characters and I think that's very incorrect <laughs> so I just wanted to go through some different perspectives especially like early queer filmmakers perspectives I was re-watching um, Dyke's Camera Action the other day which is a documentary Carolyn Berla made interviewing a lot of um, directors who were lesbians and bi women just like about their careers and like their thoughts on lesbian cinema particularly like big focus on like new queer cinema movement um, but yeah, Barbara Hammer, who I mentioned, like one of the pioneers of lesbian cinema, like she was making films in the 70s at a time where lesbians in mainstream stories, they were kind of defined only in their relationships to men. They were just like either hated men or just like wanted to be men as if we couldn't exist without men. So it was important to Hammer to present explicit lesbian intimacy, like in her films like Dyke Tactics and Super Dyke, etc. Because it was like a way for her to be really adamant about the lesbian experience and lesbian existence itself. Nice. One of the things that that documentary Dyke's Camera Action goes into, which, you know, I wish they'd followed this angle a bit closer. But um, something interesting that they talk about is many of these filmmakers talk about how like so much early lesbian cinema is rooted in activism because so many of these filmmakers met all the people that they worked with on their films like through the activist groups that they were a part of such as ACT UP in that sense early lesbians you know like it was actually radical in the way that they presented themselves and their bodies and their lives which has become very different to the kind of lesbian cinema that we're used to seeing these days it's a huge difference it's, it's not only the difference between portraying the act of sex and actually portraying like sexuality like i think it's like we were saying before about sister georgie it's very much a thing of its time as well like you know they're like fighting for everything you know so of course they're going to do that in film as well yeah one thing is it conveys the seriousness of the romance and of the sexuality miseducation of cameron post there's a scene where they're watching the hunger the hunger 1983 yeah something actually interesting about the book is like the first half of it is about Cameron's obsession with gay movies. Yes, I love this. And like seeing she's herself a, in she's that. She's a movie gay. She's a film yeah. She's gay. a movie gay. She's just like me for real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this isn't like so much uh, in the movie. The movie kind of like only deals with the second half of the novel, um, which I think is totally fine, and I understand why they did that. But yeah, like I I would recommend the book if you're interested in in hearing about that angle towards it, because um, I think it explores it very interestingly. Everything we sort of said in the in the history the brief non-comprehensive history part of this episode. When you read Miseducation of Cameron Post, Cameron very much like engages Is with all those us. different Yeah. Yeah. It, she engages with all those different errors mm -hmm. and you know she goes to her local video store and, yeah. and is borrowing all these movies because she that's like for her that it it very much is a way of seeing herself. So mm -hmm. it's a very great it's a, it's a great little book. Very yeah. much recommend. If it's something that you're able to handle, recommend it. Yeah, so sorry, that went off topic. But in the um, director's commentary of Miseducation of Cameron Post, during that scene, Desiree Alcavon spoke about how she kind of had to like fight the producers to be allowed to show one nipple of the actress during that scene. Like even though she was quite a young actress, she still wanted to show it because she wanted to use it like the nudity, the partial nudity to assert that this attraction between the girls was like actually serious. 
mm-hmm. and not them just acting out the male fantasy of teen girls practicing kissing so that they could be with boys. Which I think, you know, when you hear that, it's like, was that really necessary? Well, look at the responses to Jennifer's body. That tells you everything about why that's necessary. Maybe that's not necessarily the only way to do it, but it's a simple way to do it that's very expedient. Also, just generally, you can look at the reaction, the condescending ways that people react when even if you as a as a person, like as an LGBT person, you you might read subtext into like two women who are friends in a show or a movie. And like the way people react to that when you sort of might express that, hey, this could be a little bit gay, you know, people are very quick to be very condescending and to be very, you know, denial. Yeah. <laughs> Straight up denial. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think actually, I think that it kind of like harks back. Do you remember the little history fact that Queen Victoria outlawed men having sex because that was wrong, but she didn't do it with women because she just didn't believe that women did that. Literally, the, the like- thing, <laughs> she was like, nah, that, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> um, So that's like, you know, the, the space in which Gentleman Jack sort of operates and things because it's like well sex between women wasn't outlawed in the same way as it was between men but that was purely because the crown simply just didn't believe that it was real that it could happen so i think like that attitude of like romance between women just Mm -hmm. isn't real like that's been around for such a long time yeah also within discussions of recent queer cinema there's a bunch of people who like seem like very tired of coming out stories as if they're not really necessary and as if they're boring anymore but you know I think we should you know they still have their place and I think you know like if someone wants to do that because you know there's so many different ways of people experiencing these things so I think they're still very valuable to show but the thing about coming out story plot lines to show gay intimacy it is also like an act of bravery from these characters deciding to be themselves obviously like that's as as we mentioned before that's not the only way to be gay but it's still a really big step for a lot of people definitely it's it's still huge and i think something i don't agree with is like i'm not trying to say i don't agree with the sex positivity movement i do but i don't agree with the attitude that like oh sex is just like another thing like it's not really that important i think Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of people feel pressure to like to not feel weird or like scared or nervous or whatever about it like you know i think it's good to have to have media and stories where the act of sex and specifically gay sex like is portrayed as something that is a big deal because it is a huge deal for pretty much everyone i can't really think of someone that it wouldn't be a big deal for honestly so there's that as well when we think of coming of age stories we think about you know stories about teenagers but also like a recent film that i've seen is um am i okay it's co-directed by tig nataro um it's got dakota johnson yeah she's a woman in her 30s who's just coming to terms with the fact that she's lesbian and i think it's a really nice coming of age story about like adulthood more perspectives from queer filmmakers there's also like the fact of like sex positivity so like with sensate which was um probably like one of the biggest mainstream lgbt shows of its time like say what you will about it obviously it had so many issues Mm. but yeah it was huge Brian J. Smith, who who is a gay actor that was in Sensei, talked about the way Lana Wachowski did what she did in Sensei because she just wanted the sex positivity of it. Like she's said that like specifically she, she wasn't interested in like putting up like a bunch of rape in the show for shock value. Because also like at this time, like there was a lot of sexual assault going on in TV. Pretty terrifying. 
in the way that they wanted to deal with sex and sensei it's like if they if we're going to deal with sex um they wanted sex to be beautiful and they wanted people to watch the show and and feel gratified and enjoy it and go home and and have fun with with those thoughts in their heads which i do like also like filmmakers like gregor rocky who talk about queer objectification gregor rocky he did an interview with vulture while he was promoting now apocalypse a favorite show of the gay v club podcast Mm -hmm. it's a very horny show yeah so very relevant to this episode and just very on brand for gregor rocky like no one Mm -hmm. no one is doing it like him still like he walked so that and who's running? Who's running? Who's running? No one. <laughs> no one. He's just running. He's just still running. Yeah, he's still running. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he said on the topic of objectification and queer objectification, he said, it was very important to me to have a lot of people of colour in the show and that whole Bruce Webbery aesthetic, which is a huge influence on me, but also to be able to react to it. And so the objectification of that symbol but at the same time, all of the guys of colour are equally objectified. The idea of questioning the whole notion of objectification, particularly queer objectification. Yeah. Yeah, let queer people be horny and make things that they want to see, really. And like, I think also as well, like one of the arguments against sex scenes is like, it's also kind of rooted in shame for some people. And I think especially like with lesbians and bi women, young ones, they're kind of made to feel guilty with topics like such as the male gaze. Like we're kind of made to feel guilty about finding women hot, which is... Mm. um. <laughs> I also think in general, Um, when you're young, the idea that you're allowed to be thinking about sex is it's deeply demonized for everyone, like when you're young. Yeah, there's a really great short film by Alexis Longwa on um, on movie called The Demons of Dorothy, which is like literally it's like one of the best movies I've ever seen. It's like 20 minutes and it's just it's incredible. So it's about this um, lesbian filmmaker that just she's just so horny and she wants to make movies about like butchers with like huge boobs who like make out gratuitously and stuff like that. But like she's just constantly being shot down for it because it's not tasteful. It's just a really funny movie. It's weirdly gory as well. So watch out. But um, I, I highly recommend. Um, yeah. But the flip side of this, unfortunately, as to like why there's a lot of in gay cinema, there's explicit sex scenes, you know, outside of like what queer filmmakers are doing, there's straight people who make gay films. And there's what? they've got <laughs> there's straight people. Literally, Ugh. like, is this is this allowed? Is this allowed? Is this Should allowed? this is be this... allowed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just. Yeah, I think you just need to have empathy, really. I don't think it's like you have to be like part of a group. To, but yeah, anyways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just think you um, need to have compassion. You need to. Yeah, you just need to have empathy and compassion. You know, nothing's banal if you film it with empathy and love, as Agnes Varda said. But yeah, straight people's curiosity and voyeurism is another reason that you see a lot of explicit gay sex in gay cinema. In relation to like lesbian cinema, you have misogynistic creeps like Abdelatif Kitic. The male gaze as a cinematic technique is about the idea that you're meant to view, like the audience is meant to view a film through the eyes of a man and look at women as if they don't have any internal thoughts and just being reduced to objects. With this, there's kind of also, when we talk about sex scenes, like we also often strip them of context, which is something that's quite sad. So like, for instance, if you were to search up in any porn site the title of a gay film, you will be able to find the clip of the big sex scene because one of the things about the male gaze in particular is being able to completely strip context 
of a scene just for something to find gratifying, which is really sad and gross, but, you know, nothing that we can really stop, unfortunately. But yeah, you know, obviously, like, this also doesn't just apply to men watching lesbian films. There's also just a lot of fetishization of gay men by straight women. I'm going to use, which is just, (laughs) yeah, it's just, come on, guys. Uh, (laughs) This is like, I feel like it's so rude. I just terminally am bearing witness to that, like, so much, just by virtue of being someone on Tumblr.com. Yeah. Like, you just view these straight women being so gross about gay men or men they believe to be gay, and it's just, it gives me headache. It gives me migraine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I want to I wanna use as a recent example the new interview of the vampire series, which is, like, so sexy. You know, that's another example of, like, stuff that I watch. I'm like, I'm glad that they're having fun, you know, levitating. (laughs) This is none of my business, but, you know, I'm glad that they're having a good time. But, yeah, again, like, a lot of these scenes are being stripped of context by straight women. And obviously, like, you know, a lot of gay men are enjoying these scenes as well. Quite a few of the directors are gay, including Levan Akin of And Then We Danced Fame has directed a couple episodes of that series. But in terms of, like, stripping of context... Like, I talk about this with The Handmaiden a lot, but, like, for instance, with Interview with a Vampire, like, there is um, a scene in episode, I want to say episode six or five, where Lestat and Louis are having sex, but Louis is, like, completely disassociating. Like, he's having a conversation in his head, like, a psychic conversation in his head with Claudia while Lestat's doing all this stuff to him, and it's quite horrifying. This might be a bold statement, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of straight women feel entitled to do that with gay men because they themselves witness, you know, women being objectified and they view objectifying men in general, but like, you know, obviously gay men as well as like a Mm -hmm. weird sort of get back. Like they view it as okay because it's like, well, we get objectified. So, you know, it's, and it's like, no, because there, there's, there's nuance here. There's, There's Mm -hmm. intersectionality here that needs to be considered. Yeah. And I generally just think that, like, you know, if you feel awful, if you feel, like, angry about being objectified, the answer to that is to not go and objectify somebody else. Yeah. You know, like, a couple years back when, you know, they were letting, they were letting, like, some women make big films, (gasps) such as, like, remember the Ghostbusters movie? Um, with the women in it. Oh yes, I do the one recall. with the women. And people were so normal about that movie. People yeah. were so normal. Yeah. People were so normal about it. Like that's one of the movies in particular that I think about from that period, where like male objectification was included there, kind of like as the point. It's like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, as a way like, oh yeah, you can tell that this is a women's story because we're treating men like this. Uh, how does it feel now? Um, kind of vibe, which is just it's a bit tiring. <laughs> it's just it's not as it's not as it's not as radical as you think it, it is, actually. It, it really it's isn't. Just, yeah, Especially it's really because, basic, in my opinion. You know, I do also think, like, there should be a conversation about the way men are portrayed in films, like, to be objectified. But, you know, instead, I feel like the mid-2010s especially were just full of women, and even male filmmakers being like, you know how we'll be so edgy and so feminist is if we feature a scene. Reverse sexism. <laughs> where... reverse sexism reverse sexist objectification is occurring but yeah like in the same way that straight men will upload lesbian sex scenes out of context to put on porn websites to jerk off to there are straight women who do this uh, on a quieter level like with sex scenes between gay men 
this stripping of context is one of the big arguments against the portrayal of sex scenes in films, but it's just one of those unfortunate things. Like, under the straight gaze and under the cisgender gaze as well, queer people are a fetish. Mm -hmm. And when you're a person of colour, you are a fetish of a fetish. You are hypersexualized both by people who want to fuck you and also by people who claim to be concerned for you, which is incredibly sad. Uh, But I also, I just don't think that that's enough reason to completely give up trying to represent our bodies and our sexuality in good faith for our intended audiences. Like, erasing ourselves is not how we escape the male gaze or or the female quote-unquote female gaze this is a topic i'm actually quite passionate about which is Mm -hmm. i don't believe that the female gaze is necessarily morally superior to the male gaze and i think it's very strange to see it framed that way like yeah like oh i'm dressing for the female gaze and it's like well, first of all, you don't even know what that is. Second of all, there is no, like, the female gaze. And if there is, it's probably a predominantly white, straight, yeah. able-bodied, et cetera, et cetera, gaze. So I just, yeah, a topic that I'm particularly passionate about is, like, what we should be encouraging is just, as you said, more compassionate cinema. More compassionate audiences. And what, what about the compassion gaze? Like, that's really what we should be the doing. The compassionate gaze. The empathy. Not like acting like the answer to the male gaze is the female gaze or vice versa. It's like, no, 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 no. The answer is that we come up with a better way to do these things. That's the answer. Yeah. I think we're we're up to part three, which is uh, yeah, plot-driven sex scenes versus what exactly. So... <laughs> <laughs> There's this idea that the anti-sex scene crowd want to perpetuate is that sex scenes can't communicate anything in relation to the story. I just severely disagree with that because they can. And I'm just going to read a quote from um, Francis Lee, um, director of God's Own Country. And uh, when he was asked about sex scenes, because, you know, the word confronting is used a lot um, Mm. in relation to gay sex scenes a lot. And I hate it. Um, but yeah, a lot of people describe the sex scenes in God's Own Country as confronting, which is like, dude, it's just it's just real, you know? Again, that was another movie where I watched where I took particular notice, but I was still like, it's nice that this is included. You yeah. Know? But yeah, like Francis Lee's like, it is important to the plot, actually. It's the funniest thing that we're still talking about sex scenes in gay films. Like personally, like for Francis Lee, he says that he's not a big fan of dialogue um, and he didn't want to have a conversation where the character goes, oh, I feel a bit like this now. Thing is, the act of sex, that is a human experience that can convey many things. And so there was like a debate for the scenes in God's Own Country to be toned down. But really, like... He was like, like because, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm not doing that. Because like so many feel like, you know, confronting is like threatening, which is which is just really sad and just a really terrible attitude to have. There's a lot of things that people think are threatening that are really not, as I have learned. But yeah, so like the idea that sex scenes can't contribute anything to the plot or tell us anything about characters is bullshit. Another thing, I think, um, especially when we when we were talking about Orange is the New Black and with this idea that sex scenes kind of only ex- exist for objectification with Orange is the New Black and how there's like lots of talking and how it's really funny. That's something that I think is great to see in cinema the way that more modern films are normalizing these things because Mm. like it's not always just like this huge dramatic like silent things (laughs) 
one of the things that's really awful about the scenes in Blue is the Warmest Color itself, you know, aside from like the behind the scenes abuse, mm. was the fact that they don't talk in that scene. And Adele Zakopoulos' character, she's meant to be a teenager having her first time with a woman. And it's really like, um, who rims a girl <laughs> on the first date and doesn't tell her that she's about to do that? Also, like, how she know <laughs> to do so- all that? How does she know? Exactly. And, you know, there's like, you know, some fun things about continuous affirmative consent. That's like a great thing that can be raised to be portrayed within sex scenes. Um, Yeah, there's a humor to them. For instance, like The Handmaiden is like probably one of the funniest sex scenes. Like everyone talks about that being confronting. But I think it's really funny. It is funny. Like there's so much talking. Especially on the rewatch. It's like very funny. Within context and like the irony of it. I really love like bad sex scenes that are just like really goofy. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, my favorite film of the year is Nude Tuesday. Um, because every <laughs> sex scene in this movie is the most horrifically awkward thing or sometimes just downright weird thing you have ever seen in your life. And I love it. I love bad sex scenes. <laughs> my favorite sex scene in the world. <laughs> Is the scene between Jackie Van Beek and Jermaine Clement in the movie The Breaker Operas because I just love <laughs> I love how awkward it is. I love how like mad they are at each other. I love that they're talking the entire time and <laughs> I also just love knowing the context that like, you know, those two actors, like they've been friends like forever, like since they were kids. So there's just like so much layers to it that I just think is so funny. It is a deeply unsexy sex scene, but like I kind of love it for that. Like I yeah. kind of love how lame it is and how just perfunctory it is. And, you know, this is a continuation because they also have another incredibly horrible, awkward sex scene in New Tuesday together, which I just absolutely <laughs> loved. Um, <laughs> I was sitting there. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see it in cinemas, but please know that if I had, I would have been one of those awkward people just like clapping. because Yeah, no, nah, people people were doing that in the cinema when, <laughs> when I went to watch oh. it. Were they good? Because like just, it's you know, just... roaring with laughter. Because it, it's just, it's hilarious. <laughs> it is. It's hilarious. It's funny. And like, it's funny because I think those scenes, those kinds of scenes, as you said, Daya, they're real, mm-hmm. you know? Like, sex isn't always sexy and mysterious and enigmatic and silent on screen. But like, I just, you know, I appreciated... <laughs> Because on screen it's so often, like, as you said, there's, it's presented with, like, no communication. Everyone yeah. magically knows what they're meant to be doing. Yeah, um, and, like, what the other person wants and, like, everyone's, you know, like, fully prepared. Um, There's no lube um, <laughs> or protection being used at all. And it's like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, so, like, one thing that's quite great about a lot of modern media, like, from the last decade is there is a humor to it and a more human, more grounded in reality, mm. which, which I really love. Uh, Destination Wedding. <laughs> My other favorite sex scene. Actually, I I love that sex scene so much because of how awful it is, but it's so awful I cannot look at it. <laughs> I literally have put that movie on for my mum because she loves Keanu and Winona as well, but mm-hmm. I had to leave the room. Not because I was embarrassed to watch it with my mum, but just because that scene, yeah. I get so much secondhand embarrassment watching it that it's like really, it's just a task, <laughs> but it's but it's excellent. 
It's excellent. Please watch Destination Wedding and Nude Tuesday. I'm thinking of the in the first episode of Utopia where Nathan Stewart Jarrett's character and Alexander Roach's character are like trying to have sex, but they're so drunk and like their heads keep <laughs> bumping into each other and like he just yeah. like can't he can't get his buttons open to pull off his shirt and then he just and then he just he's too drunk that it <laughs> that his penis doesn't work and it's just it's just funny and like stuff like that I really I really do love to see people made a big deal out of this when Booksmart came out and like yeah I think it was I think it was good like the fact that like she 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 couldn't find the right hole is pretty mm-hmm. funny and like what's it in it's a sin um the first time that Ollie Alexander's character is hooking up with um sorry I forgot his name that guy <laughs> with that guy yeah and that guy's like um you need a wash actually like that's <laughs> And then he proceeds, after having a wash, to have, like, another really horrible, awkward conversation about something entirely different. Yeah. So, you know, that's just wonderful. Also, you know, I don't – I'm not a huge fan of, of sex education as a show, but there are, like, plenty of moments like this yeah. in sex education as well, which are quite funny. I don't remember if this is in the most recent season, but I really did like the whole saga of Eric and Adam trying to have sex for the first time, but they both were too sort of awkward to communicate, like who wanted to like who wanted be a, to talk. Okay. Who wanted to top? And like it's just so funny the way those scenes play out because until someone eventually tells them like they eventually do sit down and have the conversation. But again, I think it's just important to show people having those conversations. Yeah. And they are conversation you need to have. And yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's nice and healthy and like I, I would love to see more of that. Me because too. it's just it's just real fun. But you know, I do think there is a place for dramatic sex scenes, obviously. Oh yeah. You know, whether they're tender or like huge and, you know, artsy, like in <laughs> yes like, like in, in like in Xavier heartbeats Dolan. or like you know the yeah. atonement bookshelf scene or stuff like that mm. yeah obviously yeah not every sex scene has to be like a comprehensive mm-hmm. breakdown yeah like, a but... comprehensive breakdown but it's mm. nice to see like in more recent years that we're that we're getting more of that which brings us to part four which is gay sex education and pornography so there are newer shows like sex education like feel good and also like looking by Andrew Hyke that like kind of look into like these issues of like hygiene and and safety which I think is great and I think a major part of sort of especially not sort of sorry feel Feel good good, I Mm -hmm. mean sorry I meant feel good the other two-worded show (laughs) um a major part of feel good season two is I've forgotten the two main characters names but they're exploring like getting into like kink and stuff and there's lots of communication and stuff around that which is nice and again it's just nice to see yeah that presented that way i mean another you know i love any excuse to talk about the handmaiden so i'm going to talk about the handmaiden go for it babe do it like in relation to lesbian sex scenes and gay sex education so um one of the earliest things that apple tv made was um this docu-series called visible out on television and it was like the history of lgbt representation on american television specifically and there's this great bit when they get up to like episode five like i think it's like the second last episode because they go chronologically when they get up to the point where like the l word comes out there's this really funny bit with um wanda sykes where they're interviewing wanda sykes about it and she was like yeah all the lesbians were really excited when this came out because like we wanted to see the sex scenes because we wanted to know if we were doing it right (laughs) which i love because again like with sex education even i don't know if it's even today but in sex education classes that i did how many years ago was this many moons many moons like 15 years ago now oh god 
No one said anything about how lesbians have sex. So one of the first, and I think for a lot of lesbians my age and older, one of the first informational sources that we have about lesbian sex is through pornography, which is something that The Handmaiden and the book that it's based on, Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, is really about. It's about the fact that there's so little lesbian representation outside of pornography that's designed to objectify them, which is why The Handmaiden is like that. The way that Hidako approaches sex with Suki and like the way that she's literally acting out. She's literally just following the actions of a piece of erotica that she read, which is just like what it's commenting on, which is sad and, and fucked up, but and like what it's commenting on. And that's why I think it's really clever. The way that the movie explores that is great. So the way people talk about The Handmaiden is if it's gratuitous just because it is quite graphic and confronting. <laughs> I think it's wrong and stupid and pay attention to the movie, you dork. Look up from your phone. Watch the movie. Let's move on to the moment in popular culture that kind of inspired us to do this episode. Part five, mainstream perceptions of gay sex slash anti-Harry Styles rant slash Vita Virginia receipts. (laughs) We really should have renamed this part, but like, whatever. Part five, I'm not like other girls and other weird things that people say about gay sex in cinema. So the the actual inciting incident in many ways for Dea and I wanting to do this episode was... Um, I mean, we've wanted to do this episode for months. <laughs> we have, we have. But one I of pitched the it to you last year. <laughs> yes, yes. No, you did. But yeah. like a thing that made us go, hey, we should do this episode because like this is now. clearly... Now, we should do it now. <laughs> now, we should do it now, was um Harold Styles, uh, Harry Styles Harold of Stolensky. One Direction, of One Direction fame. He starred in a little movie called My Policeman. It's from this year. It's a queer film about two gay men who fell in love in the 50s in the UK. And they are reconciling the homophobia and all the things that they experienced um, in the present. It's very much what I like to call an old people movie, in brackets, affectionate, because it's very <laughs> much a movie about like old people reflecting on their lives. A uh, fun fact about me is that I very much like films about old people. And when I say old people, I don't mean people in their 40s and 50s. I mean people like in their freaking 70s and 80s. I freaking just love old people movies. I don't know. They provide me with a lot of comfort. My Policeman, in my opinion, is a very nice old person movie. Um, And it was mismarketed because I think... <laughs> Casting Harry Styles. This is a big thing because Mary is like the biggest Harry Styles anti, just so you know. I I am a huge, no, I'm not a Harold Styles fan. Um, I used to feel quite neutrally about him. I felt nothing in particular, but I think his behavior really irritates me. Um, And I don't really want to have the whole queer betting conversation because it's an annoying conversation to have. But safe to say he just irritates me greatly with the things he says in public like what we're going to talk about today. I do think My Policeman was mismarketed by casting Harry Styles because I think it brings in the entirely wrong audience for this movie, Mm. Um, which I think does not work in its favor because I think it's actually a perfectly fine movie, but the kinds of people that are going to go and see this movie, i.e. Harry Styles fans, which are primarily young people, are not going to enjoy this movie because it's not really a movie for them in a lot of ways. But anyway, as part of the promoting this film, Harold, you know, he was like, my movie, you know, <laughs> he was movie. like, my movie. It feels like a movie. 
It's not like Sorry, the I other girls. I think I'm going to say that phrase like for the for the rest of my life. Sorry. I know. I'll be in the old people's home being like, movie. <laughs> They'll be like, yes, Mariana, it's a movie. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, you know, he, he said that his, this film is not like the other girls and the gay sex in it is nice instead of just two guys going at it. The exact words he said was, so much of gay sex in film is two guys going at it it kind of removes the tenderness from it. And this was something he told Rolling Stone in relation to My Policeman and one of the reasons why he signed on to the film because he believed that it was presenting gay sex in a nice way rather than, you know, quote-unquote, two guys going at it. Obviously, this like these kinds of comments, it just creates like a very strange dichotomy. Like there's good gay sex and bad gay sex in movies. Yeah, there's like an elitism and also it brings in like this idea of what's tasteful and what isn't mm. and what's palatable, which is really funny because like I didn't watch this movie. Mary um, mm. gladly took one for the team. I did. I watched it. I had a good time. I had a good time. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty nice movie, honestly. It was just pleasant. Yeah, one of the things you said was the gay sex scene in general wasn't actually that unique to what we've seen before, actually. It's just nice. And the thing is, gay sex scenes in movies that are just nice, there's so many of them. There are. There's quite a lot. Michael Grandish that directed this movie like is a gay man which is why it's like a little bit puzzling because he said like similar comments to Harry Styles where it's just kind of like made it into this idea of like tastefulness and palatability which I don't think is healthy to the conversations about gay cinema really healthy or helpful because one it's not that different to you're kind of like just again there's that element of shame where if it's not like tender and like nice and stuff like it's not valuable or good or which I don't I just I just don't agree with it no I don't agree with it either and I do think that it's true that there is gay sex in film that is often portrayed like as a spectacle particularly Mm -hmm. for for non-LGBT audience which does often remove it from an emotional context. But those scenes tend to be made by non-LGBT filmmakers Mm -hmm. and without the input of any LGBT people. We've mentioned some of those films, like Blue is the Warmest Colour, Um, And one I watched recently that was completely devoid of so many things was I Love You, Philip Morris, which is just a strange little movie. Um, But I also think it's fair to say that in the context of representation on screen, like sex between gay men is moralized very differently because of the stigma, the stigma that resulted from the AIDS crisis, as well as a lot of like, like hegemonic masculinity that exists. Yeah. But I mean, I'm also talking about queer filmmakers that make sex scenes that are sexy because they want to see something sexy. Even Celine Sciamma, when she was doing the rounds for Portrait of a Lady on Fire and was talking about, like, creating the female gaze, the things that she said I found a bit weird about, like, how creating the female gaze is hard work. She said, like, it's hard work and, like, just because you're a woman, it doesn't automatically make it the female gaze. And, yeah, she mentioned the L word specifically and how, like, in the earlier seasons, those scenes of lesbian sex were male gazy. But it's also, like, because those scenes were shot by, like, Rose Trochet and other major players, like, in, in early lesbian cinema worked on on the l word and i just i just think there's like kind of an elitism to it because like there's many ways that you can portray sex and there's many ways that queer filmmakers that want to make something sexy like just because it's shot in a conventional way i'd say i think it's more about like shooting it in a conventional way as opposed to like shooting it in a tasteful way you know like because like portrait of a lady on fire is unique um in the way it's shot because um 
I don't know. <laughs> because it is. Because Next. um yeah, you just you just haven't seen anything like like it, it's scenes shot like that. It's it's shot in a very unique way, but it's this idea like anything that's shot kind of conventionally isn't. And you know, like think about films like Circumstance by um Mariam Kashavos and even The Blue Kaftan by Mariam Tozani from this year, which is like my favorite movie of the year, hands down. And stuff like that. Like those scenes, they're not particularly unique or tasteful in the way that they're made. But they're still just great. But yeah, the kind of not, I'm not like other girls sort of pitch that people are making about their movies. And then like when you watch it, they're just nice. It brings this idea of gay sex scenes need to be tasteful and palatable. I think gay people should be able to make what they want. It's really weird. The comments from Celine Sciamma are very strange to me because it's kind of like treating the reaction like it was intentional. You know, yeah. like it's it's kind of like treating the fact that men jerk off to scenes of lesbians to scenes from the l word it's kind of treating that like as the intention of everyone who worked on it to have that result rather than just something that's happened with Mm. women in film for like a million years and there's there's no way you can control that like you can't control brings back to my point earlier like you know people Mm. are going to strip these things of context anyway but that's not a reason to like not do it or like to not shoot it in a certain way yeah a similar thing happened with with Vita and Virginia as well, which was a film directed by China Button um, with Gemma Arterton playing Vita Sackville West, um, Elizabeth Debicki as Virginia Woolf and like the way that they spoke of the sex scenes there. And I remember like the funny thing is because I was trying to find the quote that Gemma Arterton said about this movie because I remember it being um this is really dodge um (laughs) at the time that that interview came out where she you know it's very similar to harold's um Mm. so much of gay sex in film is just two guys going at it um (laughs) quote (laughs) she's just like it wasn't like anything gratuitous like boobs out and that sort of thing it's important for young people to see something that's actually beautiful i'm tired of people using young people as a scapegoat like have conviction in your opinion yeah it's about women expressing something and it's also like you know she was just like their relationships were more like it was also kind of like their relationships with themselves as well as with each other and i'm like why are you (laughs) Why do you want to make I'm not this like movie other girls. full stop? Like, I'm not like the other girls. And then when you watch Vita and Virginia, those sex scenes aren't particularly unique because, like, they're just nice. This brings us to part six, which is, is queer cinema even transgressive anymore? Have we overcorrected from explicity or is it assimilation and capitalism? Um, yeah, Mariana, go ahead. Generally, fragmented platforms, which is where we are now in the sort of the way we consume media, you know, you've got so many streaming services and then on top of that, you've got all these different ways you can watch television. Like you can watch it traditionally, like through proper television or you can pirate it, whatever. But at the end of the day, like fragmented platforms mean fragmented audiences, meaning streaming services and broadcasters, they want to pump out content that appeals to as many people as as it can so that they can draw people in and make money over the last decade increases in lgbt visibility brought on by you know various rights movements has led to the amount of content about lgbt people increasing but it's made in a way to appeal to everyone because at the end of the day netflix's goal is to make money it's not necessarily to make these amazing shows that will represent you and make you feel seen it's literally to keep you subscribed to netflix more specifically to make you subscribe to netflix yeah 
And that includes straight audiences as well, obviously. So when they make something like Sex Education, they've also got to keep straight audiences in mind. They can't just be like, oh, well, this show's only for straight people or this show's only for queer people because that would be alienating audiences and, you know, limiting the amount of money they can make. So it's not necessarily transgressive. It's commercial to the point where it, it doesn't feel... To me, at least, like as a viewer, sometimes it doesn't even feel real. What do you mean by transgressive in this context? Because like transgressive like, cinema is a very specific thing. Oh, okay. I just meant like it doesn't feel radical. Or, yeah. Like, yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel radical. It doesn't feel like it's there to make a statement necessarily. It just feels like it's there so that people can go, oh my God, there's a show about this thing. I'm going to mm-hmm. sign up to Netflix so that I can watch it. And, you know, the gays will be, you know, they will say things like Heartstopper is good because it's so wholesome and nothing bad happens. And it's like, okay, that's fine, but that's not the only kind of, like, queer That's not thing the only that, kind of gay story. For me, I don't think those narratives necessarily exist to represent anyone. Rather, they sort of function in the same way that colorblindness functions in a lot of media, which is to signal that, homophobia and transphobia are over and the LGBT community is right to be sort of complacent because we've reached peak rights. We've reached peak existence. The way that it was promoted and the way that people talk about it gives me that vibe. And I do think we definitely need age-appropriate content for young people. However, like, that shouldn't necessarily translate into spoon-feeding people like these strange, like, non-existent utopias where the most homophobia you will experience is like from individuals rather than a system that's still trying to kill you. And this is what like I mean when I say that like um that like shows like Heartstopper and and sex education and other things like that, um, you know, they're sort of trying to do this in a strange in the same way that they're trying to signal that it's just individuals that do this. It's not necessarily like a systematic thing because mm. they don't want you to really think and be critical of like capitalism or any kind of system you're a part of because that would mean like not spending money with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so what frustrates me about a lot of queer media that's intended for young people and even just generally like really populist sort of queer media is that it portrays queerness and queer sex as something like very insular, something yeah. that someone who who and something that even if someone does have a problem with it they'll be proved wrong or something like mm-hmm. in it's sex education very, think of the children yeah and like in sex education i think all the time like eric is literally hate crimed in season one like by adam and by like weirdos in the street and also like his family but this is portrayed as something like oh it's a character flaw uwu, and they'll get over it But, like, it's also, like, a literal systemic issue. Like, their behavior, homophobia, like, doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not just, like, a character flaw that you have because, you know, you are gay or because you just don't like a person who happens to be gay. And most, I I would like to think that a lot of LGBT kids in the real world are aware that homophobia is sort of a social thing and not always just an individual thing, or rather it's, like, a cultural thing that informs like individuals i know definitely here in australia like a lot of people remember the plebiscite because it only happened four years ago like five. we all know that, that it's been um five years now it's been five years now but instead we get these media that's made by corporations that go like you know oh, it's okay like homophobia exists in your peers but it's like because they actually love you and and they'll and they'll change and i think that like Queer media has gone from something that 
used to be like quite radical or trying to say something very specific to something that people like brand themselves with as a way to say that like we don't really need to be radical anymore because the most homophobia ever exists is in like individual people that won't like you and not in like literal policies designed to kill you and it portrays like homophobia as just something exists that exists in these like I don't know like these stragglers who are like stuck in the past and want to remain in the and want to remain in the past so I don't know I I still I think in a way a lot of media now is like three steps forward two steps back kind of it's like Mm. somewhere like someone you know in the universe signed a contract that was like yeah we can have more visibility and we can have more representation but it can't necessarily be messy it can't it can't be it can't question the system yeah you can't actually question the system how I genuinely feel about it is that there isn't a lot of there just isn't a lot of queer media now like a lot of modern queer media like even if it does portray homophobia it portrays it as something like that's in an individual that either can change or can be removed and not something that's like you're going to come up against it all the time Mm. like from and you're going to come up against it all the time because it's the water and you're a fish yeah I don't necessarily think like that that's evil or wrong, but like I I just want to say that the reason but the reason why sex education and heartstopper and like just a lot of queer media like in general like just doesn't resonate with me is because it's presenting like these very strange this idea that like just queer people exist and there's nothing that informs that for them. Mm. And I can't relate to that because I grew up in uh, I don't know about you, Dea, but I grew up in a family, in a community, in a society. Um, and and, uh, and you that what? Soci- I know, it's crazy. Um, you didn't but, grow like, up in, in the void? I didn't grow up in the void. Um, I wish I grew up in the void. Sounds like fun. <laughs> um, but like, you know, and we've been talking about in this episode, we've been talking about like there are sometimes people learn about gay sex the first time from really horrible places. Yeah, from pornography. And the reason that happens is because we live in a society that doesn't actually want LGBT people to have rights. That doesn't want LGBT people to know what they can do and like how we can be. Yeah. And I think that a great failure, I will say, of the current batch of a lot of very popular queer media is that it doesn't go that extra step to say that, like, it's all it's really doing is going, queer people exist. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. Um, what else, though? <laughs> um, and, it, and I really do think it should go the extra step because if your intention, mm. which is what a lot of people like to say, is that, oh, think of the children – Right. If your intention is to protect children, you need them to understand what the danger actually looks like. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to protect anyone. Yeah. But there you go. That's my two cents. LGBT cinema in its early days was considered transgressive because it was very underground and very suppressed and very scandalous or considered very scandalous, which is why like you have a lot of queer filmmakers who just like didn't care about being palatable or tasteful and just were very much just horny because they could be hell yeah because it's like if you're gonna be censored just do it anyway the fact is like because lgbt media exists so much in the mainstream now we don't have that transgression anymore which is i think our art is strongest in that form 
like our art that's made for adults that you know has interesting sex scenes to watch that's like one of the strongest things that we have as lgbt artists the desensitization over time like speaks to the issues that we've already discussed and it's also just boring right now like i'm at this point where i'm just really bored i don't mind like at this point i want to see gay filmmakers make something transgressive again like it may be problematic but at least i won't be bored you know <laughs> i mean like at least i'll be able to think about these things instead of just being like yeah this is nice oh this is mm. nice you know i'm a bit tired of that oh. you know i just <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, wow, that's a queer person having yeah. a nice it's time. It's like, you know, either, like, make me mad or make me horny. Like, I'm just, I'm really... <laughs> Everyone watch to 10. <laughs> For me, I'm like, you know, I like movies, you know, that make me think, right? Yeah. Movies that make you think. Yeah. The thing is, like, transgressive cinema, like, does very much do that. Mm. And being, like, forced to become more palatable. Because there are there are filmmakers that are making, you know, trans, like, stuff like that. But it's, like, very difficult to access still through legitimate means. Because, you know, kids don't know how to torrent these days. <laughs> so, yeah, I think um, I would like to go back to that. Um, like, oh, we got, sorry. like, our Gregor Rockies and mm. John Waters of the world. And what's what's better than, than the sex scene in Bound? Absolutely nothing. Um, but like, I haven't seen anything like that for, for ages. Like that movie came out the year I was born. I was like two years old, you know, yeah. when that movie came out. I mean, obviously I didn't watch it as a baby, you know, when I watch, like, I think that, I think that's the best lesbian sex scene, honestly, in a movie, mm. the one in Bound. Like it's, it's just so good. It's not even like particularly long. It's just one shot and it's great. I can't remember what I was watching. I was watching something where they were talking about that scene in um, Queer for Fear? Yes, sorry. Yeah, Queer, Queer for Fear. And they were talking about how the Wachowskis, they both, they, they had lesbians. They, they spoke to lesbians about like, well, what are you guys? What's what's happening here? And can When I watched Dyke's Camera Action for the first time and there was like a little panel run by Queer Screen um, with a bunch of Australian lesbian filmmakers and they were talking about like the funny thing about Bound is like so many lesbians at the time it came out were like quite puzzled. Like how, how did you get this so right? You know? Um <laughs> <laughs> it's because they were lesbians and we just didn't know. But yeah, like, uh, actually, I remember um, when I was listening to Brett Goldstein's podcast, Films to be Buried With, um, I was listening to Barry Jenkins's episode of this. You know, when you're listening to that podcast, you know, you're interested in the answers of the guests, obviously, but also like you're kind of imagining Brett Goldstein interviewing you and asking you these things as you're going along. One of the yeah. questions that he asks everyone um, is like, what's the sexiest film you've ever seen? And, you know, in my head, I was just like bound by the Wachowskis. And then Barry Jenkins just said bound by the Wachowskis. And I was like, oh, bestie. <laughs> because it is. It just is. Yeah. And like, I have my issues with the Wachowskis, but like, you know, bound is, is, is I'm bound to it. <laughs> <laughs> You're bound to bound. It's so good, man. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what's your favorite, Mariana? What's My the best one. you ever had? Um, what's what's your favorite gay sex scene in cinema? Um, oh, uh, you know, not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily have to be like gratifying for you or like horny. Just like something you enjoyed. Oh, um, like it can okay. be like one of those cringy ones, even. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I just, gen I, I genuinely do just like cringy sex scenes, but. Honestly, when you asked me that, the first thing that came into my head was the uh, the Rachel on Rachel action in Disobedience. Oh, and yeah. I know that I know that that's a bit of a strange one because they are into both... Rachel romance. 
in my interracial romance movie. Um, I know that like they are both straight question mark like the actors. Sure. But I I just I appreciate like I remember at the time you and me we were talking about like they choreographed this like they edited it and all this stuff and you know then you know I knew all that going in and then watching it I was like. Oh, yeah, you can really tell. Yeah, I was like, you know, good for them. Like, this is cinema. Like, this is nice. I really, I really like that. I also just, I do, I love Disobedience a lot. I know that it's not a perfect film and there are problems with it, but it, like we were just saying before, like, I I enjoy films like that. I enjoy films that, you know, are not necessarily perfect, but they make me think about something that I might not have thought about before. Hmm. And, and I do love that film and I've I've watched it quite a few times and I think, the sex scene between Rachel McAdams and Rachel Weiss, like, I really like it. I think it's, I don't know. I, I can't say if it's my favorite because it's very much on the spot and I'd have to like properly think about it, but it's, no, that's okay. but it's definitely the first thing that I thought of when you said it, because I don't know, that's, it just stands out. It's just it good stands cinema. out to me. Very much stands out to me that one. Yeah. But anyway, as a sort of last closing part to this episode, Part seven, I wanted to talk about intimacy coordinators, my best friend, intimacy coordinators. So in the last couple of years, it started sort of around the end of the 2010s. You had people using in film, these people called intimacy coordinators, and they are people who are essentially stunt coordinators, but for intimate scenes, you know, so scenes that involve sex, kissing, nudity, and their job is to ensure that everyone is safe and comfortable and informed and prepared that the actors understand what they're meant to do. And they also like liaison with directors. Like, you know, a director might say, I want this scene to be sexy. And like the job of the intimacy coordinator is to sort of be like, okay, what does that look like? You know, what do you expect from the actors? And then they sort of go to the actors and say, Hey, this is what the director wants. Like, what are you comfortable doing? Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think that's a really great thing. And I honestly cannot believe it's a thing that we, that previously didn't really exist in film. And I definitely think this uh, this role of like an intimacy coordinator is something that definitely was prioritized more after the Me Too movement in Hollywood and, you know, more actresses and actors coming forward with their horrendous things that had happened to them on sets where they were um, assaulted or abused. And so I do think this is just one way to address that. And because I just sort of came across intimacy coordinators on TikTok, I follow like a few of them because I just like that they talk about this stuff. And I guess for me, it also very much aligns with the way that I've always thought of sex scenes, which as I said at the start of the episode, which is just another part of filmmaking. So Mm -hmm. I really enjoy like listening to intimacy coordinators because they are talking about sex scenes in those terms rather than in the sort of moral discourse way that a lot of the time you hear sex scenes spoken about, which not that that's not important discussions to have. It's just nice to hear it talked about in a different way. So I have learned that in just, you know, following intimacy coordinators and listening to them that on like union sets, there's actually like no full nudity allowed anymore. Um, So like it's a job of the intimacy coordinator to make sure actors are wearing like safeguards and modesty patches and things. And it's actually like a union rule that if an actor becomes aroused on set, filming has to stop because it's just not safe and hygienic and all lots of other things. And it doesn't matter that, you know, an actor might not want to wear a modesty garment. Like they have to be worn. Intimacy coordinators are mandatory on all like union film sets. And HBO was the first network that made intimacy coordinators required on all sets where there were intimacy, intimate scenes being filmed. And that was made 
like a rule for them in 2018. So pretty much any show you watch now on HBO that's after being Game of made, Thrones. Uh, yeah, I do think that's very interesting that this was after Game of Thrones and after like you know all the horrid stories uh, came out of Game of Thrones of how sex scenes were filmed on that show. I do think this was very much something that pushed them to do this, but I am kind of glad that they did find a way to make sure that shit didn't happen again. And I do think it's interesting that intimacy coordinators have always sort of been used in theatre, but now they're being used in film more. I mean, I'm going to plug where I work, but my uh, the Junkie Takeaway team, uh, which is Junkie's sort of like little video team, they just did a really great episode on intimacy coordinators in Australia and their work here, which is really cool. So I just personally believe that the representation of sex, including gay sex, would be less divisive if people knew from a production standpoint, like how filming sex is just another part of the creative process. Sex on film, like I personally believe, is it inherently good or bad just by virtue of it being there? Yeah. But I do definitely, on a personal level, take a lot more comfort in knowing that intimacy coordinators were involved. That was definitely something that helped me get through House of the Dragon recently. Um, because that was a tough one. Um, Sonoya Mizuno had like the worst character introduction that I've ever seen in a piece mm-hmm. of media ever. Um, yeah. No, I don't care that there was an intimacy coordinator. I, I know, available. I know. Like, I'm not just, saying that that's it makes just it all up okay. Racist, man. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I know I'm, that. I'm just saying that yeah. in general, like. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's it was bad. <laughs> Michaela Cole and I May Destroy You dedicated her BAFTA award to the intimacy coordinator on my I May Destroy You, and there's a really good interview with the Guardian where she breaks down like how they filmed the various sex scenes and scenes of assault in that show. That's a really lovely interview and a very interesting interview just from an industry standpoint. And also, (laughs) I just think if we as an audience can know that what we're watching was done safely and intentionally in the same way that we know that with stunts, like, I don't know about you, but when I'm watching a stunt scene, I genuinely can rely on the fact that the actor is probably not doing that there's probably a stunt person it was probably highly choreographed and they're wearing wires and they're wearing a harness and they're wearing all this stuff unless you're watching a tom cruise film but that's because he's a lunatic um um, but like you know i i hope one day we can get to the point where we can talk about sex scenes in film in that way Mm. Or rather, like, that is the foundation for the way we think about sex scenes Mm -hmm. on the way we talk about them. And just on this note, I will say it's not a queer sex scene necessarily, but everyone loves Kate and Anthony's sex scene in Bridgerton. And uh, Sorry for the person I became earlier this year. (laughs) You should be. No, No, I'm not. Listen, Simone actually is just that powerful. Like, she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Um, And (laughs) I will not apologize. I'm not sorry, but... Even yeah. no, even I watched it because I thought she was beautiful. I just she's it got so, too bridge like literally. It, she's so beautiful. It just got too Bridgertony yeah. for me to keep going. Yeah. But yeah, uh, that scene between Kate and Anthony, the sex scene, which I did skip fast forward to watch, and I remember messaging you being like, "Why are they in a gazebo? I don't understand." And I explained because everyone fucking hates them. 
But the whole, like, everyone loves that sex scene and there's a really great interview with the intimacy coordinator, whose name is Lizzie Talbot, about, like, how they choreographed that scene and it was very much a collaboration between Cheryl Dunier, who directed the episode. Of Watermelon Woman fame. Of Watermelon Woman fame. And Simone Ashley and Jonathan Bailey. And, like, they came up with the ideas of, like, focusing on, like, taking off the gloves and all the close-ups on the parts of the body that they were happy with and... You know what? The result. Look at that. That's a great yeah, result. That's art. Um, it's hot. It's great. Put it um, in the MoMA. Yeah, put it in the MoMA. Um, it's like the only good sex scene that's ever happened in Bridgerton, in my opinion. <laughs> anyway, uh, is it a coincidence that a scene so sexy involves the creative collaboration of two gay people? Uh, no, I don't think that's a coincidence at all. Yeah. LGBT filmmakers, like, you have to be hyper aware about these things. Because mm. you know that there's so much, like, there's, like, so many eyeballs and discriminating factors about it. Mm. You just understand it more. Yeah. Or you just have to understand it more. I think the Cathany, or however they say the ship name, I, I think their, their sex scene in the gazebo, uh, that's, like, a testament to the power of intimacy coordinators. And so is shows, like, I May Destroy You. And I think that show you really like, Duryadhan, um, Generation? There was a really great interview with the intimacy coordinator on that show as well, talking about like how they did mm. things in that show. But I yeah, generation it, so I is great. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I just think that the actors like Sean Bean and even unfortunately Tony Collette, who have been like weirdly bad mouthing intimacy coordinators and saying they're unnecessary, um, no, <laughs> get fucked. Shush. <laughs> Shut up. I also think it's very funny that Sean Bean, when he was asked about this, said, like, I think it ruins the natural chemistry between actors. Like, Mr. Bean, when have you had <laughs> chemistry? <laughs> Mr. Bean. <laughs> I never thought about that before. But, like, you know. His poor children. Sean... <laughs> but Sorry, anyway, um, No, but, like. That's what gets me, like, with that comment. I'm like, when has Sean Bean had chemistry with anybody on screen? You're just there to die. (laughs) Point me in the direction. But yeah, as for Tony Collette, nah, this ain't it. Stick with what you know, Tony. But that's my two cents on intimacy coordinators. Just to be clear, I don't think they're a fix-all for how sex is portrayed in cinema. Like, that is obviously something that comes from culture and it comes from society at large but i think that they are like a great way to address things on an on a technical level and at an industry level in how sex scenes actually mechanically for lack of a better word like on when you're on sets Mm -hmm. you know how that actually works how it's part of the movie how it's part of the movie so that's that and that's the end of the episode unless you have any final thoughts do you have any final thoughts durian oh i just remembered in relation to that point of plot driven sex i just remembered the great is an example of a story where like sex is very relevant to the plot actually oh my god yeah yeah Yeah. you know some of it is gay also um a lot of it I love this. A lot of it is very funny. A lot of it is cringy. A lot of, <laughs> and then some of it is extremely hot. So yeah. you know you have the full spectrum You've of the, the human full experience. Spectrum, yeah. yeah, of the sexual experience mm-hmm. in that. Yeah, I really miss the great so much. I miss the great too. Is it. it coming back next year? I don't know. But yeah, that's a oh. bit that's a bit off topic. But whatever. No, um, it's not. It's relevant. <laughs> 
Anyways, I love The Great. I love The Great. That's that's where we end. The Great yeah. is an excellent show. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Speaking of, I'm just going to say this now. Watch The Serpent Queen. <laughs> it's a kind of a similar vibe. It's more like The Great meets I, Tonya, And I think it's really fun. And it's a little bit gay. Um, a Ooh. little bit. That's not the only good thing about it. But yeah, I think we're done. Like, have we answered the question? Should sex scenes be allowed? Um, not really. Like, that's just like the gag title of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because I'm making fun of the people that think that they shouldn't be. To those people, I would just like to say, maybe you should think about why it is important. Obviously, like, this is very subjective based on how you feel as a viewer. And I think the thing, a lot of this discourse comes just from one's personal level of comfort. I think instead of making your personal issues certain content as like a big moral issue that needs to be addressed across like the entire medium of screen storytelling I think you should just like use your own discretion Mm. and just watch what you're comfortable seeing instead of making it everyone else's business just think about it a bit more and if you are going to talk about these scenes talk about them as part of the story Talk about them without stripping the context, because if you treat every sex scene as unnecessary to the narrative, you're not going to understand shows like The Great, or movies like The Handmaiden, or Crash, or God's Own Country, like pretty much every queer movie. Like, these scenes, they exist for a reason, and even if the reason is gratification, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, that's a good point too. Don't act like, oh, this sex scene just exists in this thing, and and..." because then, if that was true, then you'd just be watching porn, which you're not. So yeah, just think about it a bit more instead of saying it's not valuable because it brings you personal discomfort. And yeah, use your discretion because there's sex scenes that I don't want to see that I'll just skip over because I've learned the hard way that there are some things that I can and can't take. Sometimes if you feel uncomfortable, as you said, like rather than projecting that discomfort onto everybody else, maybe you need to sort of just sit with yourself and figure out, well, hang on. Why does this make me uncomfortable? And how and how can I either A, alleviate that discomfort, or B, you know, just... Just keep myself safe. Just keep myself safe. And, yeah. like, it's okay to do that. It's yeah. okay. If something is making you uncomfortable, it's okay to just turn it off. Yeah. You don't have to keep watching it. You don't have to keep engaging with it. This isn't just... Clockwork Orange. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to, like, strap you to a thing with your eyes. <laughs> And be like, watch the sex scene in Bound. No. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, not everybody. (laughs) Just, just, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, mind your business. And like, if you are going to talk about these things, like talk about them with nuance. Yeah. And, you know, engage with it as a story. Don't strip it of context. Yeah. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. And we hope you enjoyed listening to us ramble about sex scenes in gay film. Thank you. Be safe, you guys, and watch something cool and tell your crush about us. And thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye bye.